Welcome to Beginner Women, a podcast where we throw out our adult agendas and focus on what it takes to shape a new future for girls and young women. From education and career to health and wealth, we talk to experts, thought leaders, and extraordinary women who will challenge the way you think about girls, women, and ambition. Here's your host, Katherine Cornfield. Welcome to Beginner Women. I'm Katherine Cornfield, founder of Ambitious, and that's Ambitious with a She, where we take a unique approach to leadership and career development. We've helped hundreds of girls and young women to develop autonomy, agency, and purpose by equipping them with the critical skills and knowledge they need to thrive today and in tomorrow's world. We started this podcast because we know how important everyday role models are, and we want to empower you, parents, educators, and other caring adults with smart, actionable strategies to help the beginner women in your lives reach their full potential. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by Rhiannon Rosalind. Rhiannon is the president, CEO, and owner of the Economic Club of Canada, founder of the Junior Economic Club of Canada, and CEO and co-founder of the Global Institute for Conscious Economics. After graduating from Ryerson University, Rhiannon joined the Economic Club of Canada in 2008 and became CEO, president, and owner in 2011 at just 26 years old. Acknowledged as one of the most accomplished influencers in Canada, Rhiannon has been named one of Canada's change agents by Canadian Business Magazine, one of WXN Canada's top 100 most powerful women in business, not once, but three times, and she became the youngest ever WXN Hall of Fame award winner in the fall of 2018. Rhiannon has been a tireless advocate for youth, too. She's developed seven national programs under the Junior Economic Club banner that have impacted over 50,000 young Canadians and provided more than $150,000 in academic scholarships. Now, Rhiannon may mingle and do business with the C-suite crowd, but she definitely should not be confused with the establishment. She is challenging corporate Canada to see its role in creating a more prosperous and equal future for everyone. And we are very much looking forward to talking to her today. So let's get started. This episode of Beginner Women is brought to you by Interact Corporation a leading provider of payments and digital information solutions in Canada for over 35 years. Interact is also a proud supporter of the Ambitious Startup Self program. This program combines financial, digital, and civic literacy with entrepreneurship to equip girls and beginner women with the actionable skills, real-life knowledge, and experience-based confidence they need to navigate independence and make a positive impact in our world. Let's jump right in. Thank you very much for being here today. Rhiannon, let's start right off the top with you and your story. I'm very intrigued by it. You were basically (laughs) uh, a beginner woman yourself when you took over the Economic Club of Canada. And for those listeners who don't know, officially the Economic Club of Canada is a nonpartisan speakers forum, but under Rhiannon's leadership, it has become Canada's highest profile and most respected platform for nonpartisan dialogue and discussion among not just Canada, but the world's most influential thought leaders. And it's kind of a big deal. So Rhiannon, can you briefly take us through your journey from teenager to top dog at the Economic Club of Canada? 
Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to do that. And I'll start right at the sort of beginning, just because I think it's important for context for the listeners. I grew up in Toronto. I was raised by a single mother. I grew up in poverty. My family had a lot of different um, myriad of things that we were dealing with in the home, but there was definitely violence in the home and addiction in the home. And so I, from a young age, first of all, became quite entrepreneurial. At 10 years old, I started my own business, literally to to have pocket change like the rest of my friends. So I just had this hunger to sort of fit in and be able to be like other people and, and have freedom, freedom to be able to participate in the things that I wanted to. And at that age, it meant going, you know, to have a pizza slice after school. Um, but it shaped me in such a way that I didn't really realize until later in my life. I ended up after, you know, a lot of trial and error and going down many rabbit holes and actually having my own real kind of spiral with drugs and alcohol myself and being kicked out of school in grade 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had an awakening at around 15 years old where I woke up one morning. I had been partying all night. I looked in the mirror. I saw my eyes. I did not like... There was something in my eyes, these 15-year-old eyes that looked far beyond my age. They mirrored something in my mother's eyes. I could recognize it. And I just thought, no, I don't want to repeat this cycle. I don't want to do this. And so I got myself back into school, became the first person in my family to finish high school and then go on to university. And when I got to university, I started to be able to study things that I was actually interested in and a whole world opened up to me. I became so interested in politics, public policy, social justice, you know, humanitarian stories and global issues. And uh, my final year of my undergrad at Ryerson here in the city, I was doing a research project with um, a core group of students in the school. We were looking at poverty alleviation strategies in Toronto and looking at corporate citizenship mechanisms to imply those ideas. And I decided for the first time to be honest about my actual lived experience and background. This had been something I had pretended kind of didn't happen. I wanted to blend in with everyone. I it was like sort of my secret that I, you know, had up my sleeve. And I decided for the first time to kind of step into my own authenticity. And what happened was pretty magical. My peers ended up asking me to be the one to present the research findings at a big sort of event that the university was putting on. And it was that day that one of the founding board members of the Economic Club of Toronto was in the audience um, and happened to hear me. And he approached me and said, listen, like we are looking to hire some entry-level folks to, um, you know, run events. It seems like you're pretty, you know, policy-minded and you might be a great fit. And so I took his card, but had no intention of looking for work, was going to go right back into school, do my master's. But something in me told me that I should go and meet with this gentleman and meet the CEO that ran this company that I had really never heard of. Um, but I did my homework and research and I was like, wow, I wonder why they want me to work there. Like, you know, it just really was a, what you kind of think it was a Bay Street voice club in many ways. I mean, nothing about it, including the font on the website spoke to me as a person. Um, but I just had this inkling in my pit of my stomach and I've been someone who's really learned to trust my instincts and, and my intuition, if I'm honest. And so I decided to go and take that interview, walked into the then pretty small office, met the CEO, and something told me, you know, A, that I just knew walking in, I was going to get the job. I just felt it. I came in so prepared. I mean, I did my yeah. homework. That's always been something that I've 
prided myself on. And um, of course, I was offered this entry-level job after a really interesting interview that really felt more like a conversation that lasted, you know, an hour and a half where we really got in depth about what the CEO was trying to build and what he was looking for. And they gave me this entry level position. My first day on the job, we were hosting Bill Clinton. That's the first day on the job. That was my first day on the job. So, you know, I had to really wonder what in the world how did I end up here? You know, this is wild. Like from where I came from to now where I was, I just couldn't believe it. I was 23 years old. And so I, you know, I had imposter syndrome, that's for sure. I was in these rooms and I didn't really quite understand why or how I got to where I was. And of course I was still entry level. So, you know, that part made sense. Um, But I decided to just, like I do with most things in my life, learn everything I possibly could. And I had this perfect mix of, naivety about, um, you know, who all these people really were and the power that was in the rooms that I was standing in. And so I just poured myself into being the best, you know, entry level events coordinator that I could possibly be over the next six months. I really, really drilled down. I was staying late. I was coming in early. I was rearranging the office on weekends. I was just so interested. Um, I laugh and joke. I was like, you know, if we were in a space that wasn't accessible, I would literally like lift someone into the room if I needed to. Like, I just had this, like, (laughs) I am here to serve. I want to make this great. I really, there was no, you know, ego, there was no job I wasn't willing to do. And I just went right into it with pride, with absolute pride that I could be a part of this very special organization. And at the six month mark, um, I definitely proven myself as probably one of the, wow, like this young girl was a great hire and she's great and dedicated. And I asked the then CEO if he would take some time um, to sit down with me one day, because I had a couple of ideas. I'd been taking notes in my little notebook, didn't want to overstep. And I wanted to prove that I was in it to, you know, work hard and be there, but had this meeting with him and decided to share my ideas, took a risk and said, listen, I think you can tell that I absolutely love working for you. And I love being here. I have a couple of ideas about how I think we can make this organization even better than it already is. If you're willing to listen, he listened. My main big idea there was let's rebrand the entire organization, become the Economic Club of Canada. Because at the time we were Toronto. Yeah. And I just said, you know, there are heads of state that are going into our nation's capital and we are missing out the opportunity to be able to host them. And I just think that we could copy the model. We could take our events right across the country. So much diversity and opinion and perspective, depending on the territory or province that you're in. And so he, you know, allowed me to start rolling this out. And I really had no idea of how to rebrand or launch a national brand. But I just, again, it was that naivety and and that sort of, I just can kind of try and do anything. And so we started to do that. Um, We, you know, got the new Economic Club of Canada up on the website. He didn't want to abandon Toronto completely, although I, you know, I thought that we should. Um, But he allowed me to start to roll it out. And uh, about, I want to say about eight weeks later, um, we got a call. So Barack Obama was running against John McCain in the 2008 election. And McCain's advance team decided that McCain wanted to do a speech on Canadian soil. And the Economic Club of Canada came up because they wanted to go to Ottawa. And we got that gig. And it was the first time in history that a U.S. presidential nominee had ever given address on Canadian soil during an election. And it put us 
on the Mac um, in such a, such a huge way. And I think all of a sudden the people who were, you know, in the senior leadership of the economic club were like, who is this kid? Like, where did she come from? That is really a remarkable journey. So it really is a big, long road that you've already walked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my next question you've already answered, which is what was that like, you know, walking in on that first day and being in the space where, you know, you're dealing with Canada's most influential leaders. And here you are dealing with Bill Clinton on the first day. But also what I there's so many lessons there already. We haven't even started. But just the idea of sort of putting in the work. Yes. And really sort of getting the lay of the land, understanding where you were, understanding the context and the people that you would be working with, and then percolating a little bit on that idea and preparing yeah. to bring that forward in a way that would be would be meaningful. Obviously, you were working with somebody who was very open-minded and supportive. Yeah, which is so true. And I think that that really is such an important point. Like my ideas were received and I was lucky enough to be in a position where, you know, the leadership and the male leadership of this organization was willing to recognize where good, solid ideas were coming from. Um I think that that's, you know, goes without saying. So I never even after all of this imagined that I would one day be the CEO of this organization or that I would, you know, full out own the organization, but here we are today. He left and you took over. Is that is that how it goes? So after, you know, all that, you know, nice story of how it all started, you know, things started to really amp up for us and they started to really, really value me. And I continued to grow up the ranks quite quickly. And it got to the point where, you know, and my confidence was building every single time I had an idea and it's, I was right, or, you know, the marketplace responded in the right appropriate way. I started to build a confidence in myself and that is a powerful combination. And so it just started to happen. So effortlessly, I was truly in flow. And what happened was, you know, within a couple of years, they'd made me the vice president of the Economic Club of Canada. I became the CEO's real right hand. I was going to all pitches, board meetings. I was really doing a lot of the business strategy and development alongside um, my predecessor. And then eventually he decided he wanted to run for public office in the federal election. And um, as you know, politics is fickle. You don't know if you're going to win or lose or what's going to happen. So he, you know, sat me down and said, listen, and I'm going to have to dedicate a lot of time to this campaign if I'm interested in doing this. And there's no guarantee that I, you know, make it at the end. And he said, would you step in and run the organization while I, you know, pursue this? And so I said, yes, really and truly, and it's no slight to him, but nobody believed that he was going to win (laughs) because it was just a really tough situation. You know, he was a new candidate. He was running against Ken Dryden, who has, you know, he's a hockey legend and a great Canadian and just had a lot of name recognition, which is quite important. So we didn't really think that that was going to happen or I didn't. And of course, I was nine months pregnant when the final you know, election was called. So May 2nd, um, 2011 was, um, you know, E-Day. And then two weeks later, I was to give birth to my son, Luke. And so, of course, you know, he wins the election. And um, I become the president and CEO full on of the Economic Club of Canada. And then I give birth to my first child two weeks later. So like you want to talk about, you know, something really rocking your boat, that'll do it. It was really a really interesting time in my life. Incredibly hard. Um, Looking back, I don't even know where I got the 
the guts to do what I did. Um, and it was against, you know, definitely the advice from the people around me, including my family who just really thought, you know what, Rhiannon, uh, you know, maybe you need to take a second here. This is a big undertaking, but I just, something in my heart told me that it was my moment and something in my heart told me that I wanted to build something for myself that my children would come to understand one day. And, you know, my mother helped me tremendously. She actually watched my son for me full time until he was about nine months old while I went to run this company. And, and, you know, it's not like I left my child, you know, completely. We have, you know, lots of remote access and ways to be able to do things, but it was a tough, tough time for me. And funny because you know, I had so much confidence that had been built up over the years. I was really confident in, you know, being the woman in the room when I was beside my predecessor, who was the very typical Bay Street man. It was like he was my ticket in the door. He would sponsor and vouch for me and then I would speak and people would accept it. But wow, did it change when I no longer had that? Um, when it was just me, when all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, um, you're the CEO of the Economic Club of Canada? I mean, it just was, it made no sense to anyone. And it was a really interesting couple of years and a really hard couple of years where I really had to redefine what it was going to mean for a young woman to run an organization like this. I bet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also didn't understand that those two very significant things converged, um, taking over the club and then, and then having, having your son, you know, I'm the mother of one daughter and, Mm -hmm. um, she arrived at a time when I was working in politics. So I have a little bit of a flavor for, uh, the timing, but uh, I had nowhere near that, uh, that level of, um, pressure that that would come with sort of taking on leadership. And that is something that we talk a lot about at Ambitious. We talk to girls and young women about what leadership means, but we're broad in in how how we approach it. It's there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to understand leadership. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the role or position. It's not just about the skill set that goes with it, the listening and communication, the things that we talk an awful lot about when we talk about women in leadership. But it means actually taking on positions of real decision-making and about making meaningful change once Mm -hmm. you're in those positions and able to make those decisions. And you're kind of a a, a really uh, great example of all of that. So not just the skill set and the role, but also the decision-making and the change. And I, I know, and I get the sense even from talking to you now, but that you're a very, for lack of a better word, almost a disruptive force on many levels. You were a very young woman in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, you were still probably younger than I am. Um, you are challenging Canada's corporate leaders in, in a way that they may not have been challenged before, not just by your presence, but by your Uh, agenda. You are really uh, clear and explicit about how you feel Canada can be more equitable and inclusive and prosperous and what role business has in that. But also you have taken on a lot of advocacy and not just advocacy, but action in support of youth. So Mm -hmm. where does this, aside from your sort of backstory, where does this drive for change come from and where like in all of that, does it manifest most meaningfully for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do think that, and you know, the reason why I did share my backstory is because when you get to see the world 
through a lens like I did in the you know early years of my life, and then you end up in this very different space um, where you know all of a sudden I'm literally in C-suite office towers on Bay Street, and I'm getting to meet folks who have perhaps a different perspective, and not everybody there, but a different perspective. And then you're trying to sort of make sense. It was really a personal quest of making sense of, well, why am I here? Well, what's the bigger question that I need to ask myself? And what's the bigger purpose to it all? I've always been someone who always thinks beyond what's just in front of me, but really what's the bigger purpose? Why? Why? I'm always asking why. And so, you know, when I was so uncomfortable in those early years, as the young woman, and again, almost went back and reverted back to that sort of shameful, I hope no one really finds out who I am or where I'm from. Um, And it's so easy to kind of grapple all the time with those things. And I felt that for a while, I was like, I've really got to fit in. Like, I hope they just think I'm, I don't know, some private school, you know, daughter of a CEO, maybe I'll fit in then. And I just couldn't fit that way. And I was um, so uncomfortable in those spaces that I was actually, people would mirror back my own discomfort. Like people were dismissing me constantly. And I just was, you know, not holding my own at the tables. And I was just so really, truly not confident all of a sudden. And so I finally got to a place where I said, okay, look, I am never going to fit into these rooms. It doesn't matter what I do. I do not look the the part. I'm, you know, a couple generations too early to be here. I mean, women have been fighting to be in these boardrooms and these places for years. So this is just strange you know, that I'm here and I'm going to embrace it. And so the first thing that I did was I started the junior economic club because I thought maybe I'm here to kind of bridge people who wouldn't normally be here to the people who are. Maybe that's what I'm here to do. And once I kind of locked into that, I gave myself a bigger purpose other than myself fitting in. And I became a, you know, a champion for others that weren't able to be where I was now finding myself. And it really gave me a sense of um, authentic purpose for doing what I was doing. And that fueled me in a different way. And I thought, if I truly believe that, you know, all of these young people deserve to be in this room, then I should feel that I deserve it to be in this room. It's also a big deal for our listeners. The Junior Economic Club is like, I guess it's up to seven national programs, more than 50,000 young Canadians and about $150,000 in academic scholarships. So, and, and you started that, like you said, because you actually wanted to empower the young people to realize their full potential. That's obviously something that I share as motivation and as purpose. My work is with girls and young women, yes. but I think the underlying motivation is obviously the same. Um, we focus on money, business, and politics as well, because yes. we're, we sort of see those as the tools for change. And uh, we want more girls and women to be in the positions that are able to leverage those tools. Yeah. Um, so obviously, there's a, we have a, a common focus on financial literacy. Mm-hmm. at the heart of the programming. And this episode is airing during Financial Literacy Month. So let's dig just a little bit deeper into financial literacy specifically. I, obviously, we agree on the importance of financial literacy for young people. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious uh, why it is important to you. For me, it's because I learned some painful lessons in my life, not the same painful lessons as yours, but I have come to know how critically important it is for women in particular to understand money mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. to be independent. And I have learned that it's not just important professionally, it's also important personally. So what 
about financial literacy in particular is so important to you? I think for me, it's a couple of things. So number one, obviously, as someone who is a business owner, an entrepreneur who was raised the way I was with, you know, true money trouble throughout my life and watching my family struggle, all those things combined made me really, really analyze, you know, what's the best route? What's the best vehicle toward uplifting somebody? I am very interested in studying systems and the way that they are designed and then trying to empower young people to understand the vehicles that they have at their disposal to create change, well-being, and power for themselves. And financial well-being is really at the heart of so much of it. And if you look at the statistics, we know that finance is the number one stressor for Canadians. It really doesn't discriminate. It's at all levels. So you could be, you know, a C-suite executive with your biggest stressor being finance, or you could be someone who is struggling to make ends meet and your biggest stressor is finance. So we're seeing it across the board as the number one. We also kind of have to look at the backdrop of our current economic system of the way that it's designed. We can look at debt to income ratios. We can look at just, you know, the environmental, um, effect of our current system and what it is doing to the planet and to people. And it is all related. Um, so, I take a little bit of a different approach just because I do have that lived experience. And so I know this, that I had a deep wound around money. Um, you don't grow up the way that I you know, did um, with money being the source of almost every violent fight in the household, um, money being the source of people... Um, choosing to numb with, with drugs and alcohol, money being the source of why, you know, you watched your mom crying at the coffee table or whatever else. I mean, these were all the little things that I picked up. So what was really interesting for me was once I, you know, started to um, make my own money and started to um, see some success with what I was doing, I had this really odd um, internal struggle because all the way growing up, the way that these, you know, money issues were rationalized in the home was almost like, well, we're poor people, but we're good people. And, you know, wealthy are, you know, they don't care. And it was this really weird mix up of, of things and stories that were told, which I realized the more and more that I started working in communities that had been underserved, that there was this real, like, love hate issue with money. And it was quite emotional and it was layered and it was going deep. And, you know, I call it the sort of emotional trauma around money that exists. You cannot come from a reservation in this country as a young first nation person and not have some trauma around money. You cannot come from transitioning out of homelessness or foster care, or just have been through different parts of a system and not have some trauma. So the first place that I wanted to start to address some of that was rebuilding the foundation of our relationship to money, really understanding where we stood as individuals and how individual that experience is and starting to go down and kind of subconsciously work on some of the psychology around our beliefs and then be able to bring in the tools and then be able to bring in some of those harder skills. And so that's been kind of my focus. Um, I didn't get there right away. I, of course, see the value in, you know, people need to understand budgeting and they need to understand the different vehicles for investment and they need to understand needs and wants and spending. But there wasn't 
something that wasn't fully resonating or landing with a lot of the young people that I was working with. And I just saw their eyes kind of gloss over. And then I thought, oh, of course, because that's the same thing that happens to me when you start bringing up something that I haven't really sorted out from my history or past. I kind of gloss over, you kind of shut down. That's so interesting. I think I've had the same experience with girls in terms of material that doesn't land with them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the connection you're making to financial well-being and to mindfulness and to that emotional and psychological relationship to money is really, really interesting. At Ambitious, our focus is a little bit more on context and systems and understanding mm-hmm. uh, where it comes from and how it moves around and how decision makers are allocating those resources, both personally and professionally, and at the societal level, and really understanding where individuals fit into that system of money. And I think it's like a killer combination, actually, is that Mm -hmm. sort of systems and context around money at the same time as surfacing, as you've been talking about, that, for lack of a better word, that baggage that we all carry around. I'm interested because as a parent, when it comes to teaching your own children money. It's more than math. As you said, there's a lot of beliefs. There's the baggage. There's a lot of that get that gets sort of embedded for parents in how they're trying to transmit and teach their children. And so I'm interested in both perspectives that you would bring both as a parent, because your Mm -hmm. kids are young, but you will be teaching them money, right? And then as an as an educator, which, uh, you know, you qualify with the Junior Economic Club and all the other programs that you're running. And I'm interested in particular, because you and I spoke beforehand about your uh, new program that sort Mm -hmm. of connect to those sort of deeper, more sort of mindful aspects of money. So both perspectives, maybe first and second, uh, your choice in whatever order. I'm just curious about that money challenge, which a lot of parents have. Yes. So with my children, and I know, you know, in the the research that I've done and, and all of my interest in, you know, psychology and the way that, you know, we really form our little beings in this world, that they will mirror what they see you do is really the truth. So you could say whatever you want till the cows come home, but it's really about, you know, what do you actually do? Not what do you say? So they need to be able to kind of watch a good example of what a healthy relationship with money looks like. And the truth is, is that nobody and no family is perfect. Nobody has it all figured out. So what I would rather them see is understanding how parents can come around the table to discuss disagreement around finance and not have it be an escalation of a fight, but be able to see how we work out and sort out when things just aren't adding up or when, you know, one person wants to make a larger purchase and the other person is uneasy about that. And actually normalizing those conversations just about money. And, you know, I think that we need to normalize first. This is the issue. When we are raising a generation without showcasing ourselves that it's okay to talk about what you make or what you struggle with, or, you know, the fact that you might not fully yourself understand more deeply some of these systems or whatever else, we get to a certain point where if we didn't learn it by a certain age, let's say by the time we hit university, once we get out into the real world, it becomes shameful not to know. So we shut our mouths and, you know, this happens especially with women, we don't ask. We think, oh, I guess I should have known that. And we start to put on this facade of getting it. And we don't. 
Yeah, you're singing my song. That's why we need to talk about it soon. 100%. But I think it's rooted in, it's not just money. It's rooted in everything. Like we need to learn how to talk really, truly, and honestly about the things that we're going through in our life. Because the same thing on the other you know, side of the spectrum is happening with mental health. And if we could get real about the fact that the human experience is a spectrum of emotion and that it is constantly moving um, and that we have to really learn how to take care of ourselves and that financial health is actually a big part of taking care of our mental well-being. Um, and again, linking it back to those primary stressors. If you've got order in your financial house, and I'm putting air quotes up, um, there's order in your life. You are breathing a little easier. You're sleeping better. You're probably a little more organized. You're taking care of yourself. You're eating healthy food. All of these things matter so, so much. So is that what you're teaching in your new program? So I've always been kind of touching in these spaces, but this new program that we're launching, which is happening this month in November Financial Literacy Month, is called Mindfulness and Money. And what we've really done is we've really stripped back and we've really taken an approach through meditation, mindfulness, neuroscience, psychology, and economics, and foundational business, and foundational you know, financial literacy, and we've blended these together. And so we are launching on November 19th. There will be uh, 500 students in attendance. Um, and I'm kind of trying to create almost the collision for mindfulness and money, the TED Talk of bringing young people together to talk about these very interesting patterns in the way that we approach finance and, you know, the social programming that we actually have to undo if we're truly going to be successful with our finances. Because the truth is, is we've got a lot of people, you know, from the top and governments championing, you know, financial well-being, but then they have their own issues themselves. Like that's just the truth. So what that tells me is not that anyone's wrong or bad or that, you know, that's shameful or point fingers. It's like, okay, we just have to come together as really a community, as a country, as a globe, and start to really pull back some of the layers to understand like, what's driving our decision making this way? Why are we hurting ourselves? Why are we hurting our planet? You know, what's there? Why are we not able to talk to each other, connect to each other, be honest when we haven't got something figured out and seek the help and support that is readily available? You know, these are the questions that I was asking as we started to develop this. So this program has been developed by my new organization, which I co-founded called the Global Institute for Conscious Economics, where we're really looking through the lens of consciousness and looking at economic systems. So my partner, who is a entrepreneurship and business professor at OnTech University, and I have co-developed these modules that really are rooted in you know, business, ethics, neuroscience, psychology, um, and financial literacy, um, and blended these together to create this really, really special program. And is the program targeted towards youth and sort of what's the age range for that? That's fascinating. 
youth for me is always 30 and under, and that is who we're targeting. And I am all about mixing and blending folks in a room. So like, I love to have high school students working with university students, working with elementary. I think that there's so much to learn. I love to have, you know, if I'm doing a program for, you know, let's say kids who are, you know, underserved in a particular community in Toronto, I'm pairing them with kids who are completely on the opposite spectrum, because I think that when we see and expand um, just by what we see in front of us. I know growing up for me, I was in a situation where my whole surrounding was the same. My my life was normalized. My friends that I was in school with, because it's all jurisdictional and where I was living, were also struggling and their families had similar issues. So it was normal for me to be, you know, dabbling in drugs at 12 and 13 years old. I was amongst other peers who were doing the same. I wasn't meeting anyone who was, you know, on student council. I didn't even know what that meant. And so it's the exposure outside of our own sort of circle to be able to broaden our perspectives. And these things can happen without any programming at all. Like put some diverse young people in a room together and something will shift. You don't have to even do anything. And guess what? It's not just even with young people. Put a diverse group of people around any table and something will shift. That's a remarkable sort of modus operandi, not just in your sort of youth programming, as you say, but sort of embedded right into the work that you're doing with the Economic Club. And I, I get the sense that it will, it has and will have a ripple effect and that that is sort of really indicative of your leadership and almost like a legacy, for lack of a better word, which is quite something for somebody as sort of young as you are. And I think that that is very reassuring and quite inspiring because there are so many problems to fix in the world. (laughs) Oh yeah. And there are so many ways that girls and young women, and I call them beginner women up to 32, there are so many ways available to them to have an impact and to influence our future, our shared future. And so, I mean, you have such a a broad and interesting perspective because you're coming at it from lived experience. You're coming at it from your professional experience. You're coming at it from the research and the work you do and the educating that you do. And it's been a real treat actually to have this conversation. I would love to link to your junior economic club and your new program when it's live. Yes. So please let us know. I will be following that with real interest because I I do think that that mental health link to financial literacy or financial well-being, as you put it, is really, really important um, for everybody, Um, but in particular for girls and women, because they, as you know, women, um, they're less likely to consider themselves financially literate. They're less likely to invest. They make less money over their lifetimes because of the way that we sort of step out for caregiving at various stages. And ultimately women live longer. Yeah, so absolutely. there's a real driving, there's an impetus there for having those conversations and engaging girls and women in particular in those conversations about money absolutely. Right from an early, early stage. So that they're positioned for that economic independence. So thank you very much for, thank you. for joining us today. What a, what a great conversation. I can't wait to publish this. So is there one more thing that you would like to share with us? You know, I think the last thing that I'd like to leave everyone listening with is that the power here, and I know we're talking about a bunch of things, we're talking about economic systems, we're talking about financial literacy, but the power really is to continuously learn. 
to put yourself in situations and put our young people, young women and girls, young boys and men into positions and rooms that they wouldn't otherwise find themselves in. And that natural expansion is such a key critical area for learning and for actually building the foundation to a new economy, to a a more functioning social infrastructure. And so I think that that is so key. And I think it sounds like you're doing that very thing by exposing young women and girls to, you know, systems and talking about politics. We just don't have enough good examples yet of at mass women stepping into this space of power where they feel that their voice and their ideas and the way that we are designed can actually influence the way that we architect our corporate infrastructure, our political infrastructure, our economic infrastructure. So that's coming. Like Greta Thurberg, you know, at the United Nations at 16 years old. Wow. Like, can you imagine if you were 16 and you got to see an example like that? That's it. Like, that's it. It's young people coming into their power now. It's not you know, this big traditional idea that we held for so long that there's this particular hierarchy and you've got to put in 40 years and in order to be respected around the table in terms of your opinions, I think I'm an example that that's not true. If we empower young people early and they get that opportunity, the opportunity to build and transform and change is unbelievable. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how I would, I would end things. And and so excited for people to check out our program and thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity to speak about some of the work we're doing. Well, thank you again for joining us, Rhiannon. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on Beginner Women, a show where we throw out our adult agendas to shape a new future for girls. Check out our show notes for the resources we talked about in today's episode and for the actionable insights you can use to nurture and empower the girls you know. If you like what you hear on our show, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe wherever you find your favorite shows. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Ambitious. That's A-M-B-I-S-H-E-O-U-S. 